All right. Well, if you haven't already, flip over to Luke 15. Um, and as you're getting there, I want to start with a story. When I was a younger child, I um, was into several things, like some of you might have been. Um, I was a avid baseball player, so from the age of about five till 21, um, I played baseball the majority of my life, and it was a, a passion of mine. Um, but little things that I did and that I liked to do um, included something that you might have done in your childhood, which was collecting cards. Um, some might have collected coins, cards, uh, boxcars, little stuff like that. Um, but one of my fun things to do from the time I was about seven um, till 10, 12 was collect cards. Now, as some of you might have done, um, you might have collected cards and put them in a three-ring binder or a folder and put them in little um, slots and put them together, right? That was fun. And a lot of you are probably thinking I'm talking baseball cards. Well, I'm not. I'm talking about Spider-Man cards. <laughs> that was my thing. That was what me and my friends were into. Um, I was actually looking for that binder last night. thought I might be able to present it as something to show you. I still have it. It's somewhere in my house, but we've moved recently, last year, and we still haven't unpacked everything. So it's there, and I still have some of that. But when, um, when I was young, and me and my friends, we would, we would you know, earn money one way or another. Uh, sometimes it was through chores and other ways, but I would you know, take the money, and we'd go to the local card shop, and we'd buy... Uh, different sets of cards. We would take them to school with us. We would trade them. We would barter. We would say, hey, I'll give you this card for those two cards and that kind of thing. Um, it was fun, and we enjoyed it. Um, some of the, uh, the cards that we collected made sets, and some of the sets, sorry, I have some cheers because when I, uh, when I sing with, the, with you here, and um, it, it brings some tears to my eyes, and they're still kind of flowing a little bit. It also produces my nose to run, so... Um, <laughs> just so you're aware. Back to the cards. So we, you know, we spend a lot of time on collecting those, but they make sets. Some are um, small sets, five, six, seven, eight cards. Um, some are 20 card sets. Some are 100 card sets. Um, anyways, these were sets that we would put together, and I had my own and my friends had their own, but they were of some value to us, right? They uh, represented something that we liked in the moment, and we had much hope for in the future them being worth something much greater than they were at that moment because we would buy sets of cards for um, 50 cents and a dollar and stuff like that. Um, anyways, as I continue to get a little older, we didn't do that as much, but I kept it. And I put it away in my room, and I knew where it was. I would look at it ever so often. One day, I think, I was trying to do my math here, I have two younger brothers. Um, the closest one to me is nine years younger. And um, I think I was around 14 when I came home from school one day and I walked in my room and my, my set of cards are just all over the place. I'm like, ah, what happened? Where are they at? And I went to mom and we talked and um, come to find out my uh, little brother, bless his soul, he took my sets to his school so he could trade them. And uh, yeah, I was, I was very shocked and stunned. And why could you, how could you let him do that? Um, but I spent some time afterwards trying to collect them, trying to find them. Um, I looked through his room and my room, uh, discovered some in the house, which was nice. Um, had to go out and, and get new ones. Um, but out of the sets I have, I, I try to remember I might have had 15 or 20 total sets that I, was, I felt were very precious. Um, I ended up with about four or five. 
So I was pretty sad, but I was really excited for the ones that I found, again, with hope that um, they'd be worth something in the future, and they've just gone with me everywhere, and I've kept them. Um, and um, that was just a little, little piece of my childhood of something that was, in my heart, of much value and um, meant a lot to me, and that uh, losing them was an event, and then finding them was also a, a lot of work on my behalf. But in regards to that story, I want you to think about your life right now and just think about the most important possessions that you have um, within your home or your household or in your life. Uh, maybe there's a difference between now and in your former life when you may not have been saved. What would you do when you, if, if that, that thing, that possession was lost, what would you do and how would you react? What would you do when you found it and how would you react that way? In God's word today in 15, um, Jesus points out some important things that we have in God's word on how God reacts to repentant sinners, people that he has found and brought home. So if you're there in Luke 15, let's start in verse 1, and we'll read through. It begins saying, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So, as Jesus did, does, he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous people who need no repentance. Jesus goes on into verse 8. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house? And search carefully until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way again, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So there's two parables Jesus just used in regards to this passage. So we start with an image of Jesus' teaching, as we see a lot in the Gospels. And in his teaching, he is drawing people near to himself. They want to come and hear what he has to say. And as most times, there was plenty of religious leaders around as well. They wanted to hear what Jesus was saying, what he was teaching. And they were very critical of it at many times. And here, the religious leaders grumbled because Jesus didn't detest the sinners that he was drawing in with them. Actually, he was eating with them. He was rejoicing with them. This brings us to think about the self-righteous. And what do we know about self-righteous? As identified in God's word, they aren't humble. 
They exalt only those who meet their own standards. Their expectation is that only those that are as good as them can enjoy the benefits that they enjoy. So as they're grumbling, it's like they were saying, if Jesus is so righteous, he should not associate with those people. It's bringing his image down. But Jesus, knowing what they were saying, gave them these three parables to teach them, to show them, to teach those that were there with them, to teach the sinners as well. Right before this in Luke 15, uh, right before these parables in Luke 15 was in Luke 14, verse 35, at the very end of um, that. Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And again, in our songs that we sang this morning, we were blind and we could not see even when we opened our own eyes. So as we look through this word and as we look at these parables and as we learn today and every day that we come together, he who has ears, let him hear, right? We want to make sure that we are hearing God's word for what it is in its truth. Well, let's take a look at verse 4. Back to verse 4, Luke 15. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. So we see that Jesus asked them straight up, what man among you? He's going right after their conscience, right? He's directed straight towards where their hearts are, and he wants to address that. Um, in evangelism today, uh, we are able to address people's hearts through God's Word as well. We're able to bring out what there might be within them that isn't righteous, and then um, we use God's Word to do it. Uh, I, I know we've brought this man up a couple times recently, but Ray Comfort and his evangelism, he usually talks to people and addresses their intellect first. He gets them to think and to explain their position and where they're coming from and why they think or believe what they think. But then he changes the direction he's going, and he wants to address their conscience um, once he's addressed their, their intellect. Um, and he always brings them back to God's Word to do that. But Jesus here is addressing the Pharisees and the scribes. He's addressing their conscience because some of them might have thought, no, I would just leave it. I'm going to leave that one. I'm not going to risk my life or myself or my other sheep to go after the one. He wandered off. That's his own fault. Some of them might have thought that, but Jesus is making the point here that a quote-unquote good man or good shepherd would never leave his sheep out to die. So that's the first thing that we see Jesus doing in verse 4. And this idea about sheep today uh, loses its meaning for most of us, um, but it was very appropriate back then. As you can imagine, there was lots of sheep and shepherds and uh, it was their job and their duty to make sure that they took care and pastured their sheep well. Um, so if we put it into context today, I think it would be easy to assimilate that with something that is worthwhile to yourself. Uh, many of you here, it'll be children. Uh, it could be grandchildren. It could be something else. But as you think through that, and one of them were to wander off, how would you feel? I'm sure... Several of you in here know exactly how that feels. When your little ones leave the room that they're supposed to be in with you, when they leave the building that you brought them to and you were there with your, your family, like here, or your friends. 
or they're down the street and they've wandered off. Um, depending on the age and how responsible they are, uh, that fear in your heart draws out a lot of anxiety, uh, a lot of pressure, um, and uh, uh, really, really shows you who and what you care for. Um, so as we read through this, we're going to assimilate that with these sheep because these sheep are the shepherd's livelihood. These sheep um, are the flock that they take care of. This, these sheep will help their family pay for everything that they need to pay for, to barter for. Um, it provides them clothing and money and food. These sheep are what these shepherds live for. And a good shepherd makes sure to care for his sheep. Um, as I did a little bit of research into shepherds and sheep, the, the better the shepherd knows his sheep, um, the healthier the, the herd will be, and the better they will respond to him and his direction. Um, so he cares for them immensely. It is extremely important that he knows where each and every one of them are and how they're doing. If the shepherd loses one sheep, it's like losing one of his children. So we need to think through that in our own aspect today of how that would affect us. And what we're talking about here in verse 4, when he says, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Also, this good shepherd represents Jesus in this and his love for his lost sheep. Every lost sheep will be found according to his will. And he will not lose even one of them. As we know through God's word and as we learn, this is a picture representing Jesus going to find those lost sinners, and the shepherd is going to find the lost sheep and bring them home. This reminds me, if you'll put it up for me, Walker, John 6, 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but rise it up on the last day. We know that everything that God the Father has given to his son, that he will not lose a single soul. All will be Christ's and will be with him in his kingdom. In verse 5 of Luke, when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. So when he finds his lost sheep, I want to take a second to look at what the shepherd doesn't do He doesn't beat it and tie a rope around it and drag it home, right? He's not upset and angry with that sheep in a manner that, you're mine, you're coming home with me, let's go. Okay, he doesn't do that, thankfully. We're thankful for that. He also doesn't coerce it. Doesn't dangle a carrot in front of its nose and say, come on, let's go. I know the way home, just follow me. He's not doing that for it. He doesn't show up. The sheep sees him. He sees the sheep. And he says, hey, Mr. Sheep, I'm here. I'm going to wait for you to accept me into your heart, and then we're going to go, right? He's not doing that. And he certainly doesn't decide to pick it up and put it on his shoulders and carry it home after all the sheep can do, right? No. He does the most loving thing possible. He picks the sheep up, and he puts the entire burden on himself, and he carries that sheep all the way home. 
And so it is with Jesus. As we see in Romans 5.8, it so clearly expresses this when we put ourselves in it. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Right? We are lost. We were lost. We were wandering on our own. And we weren't enticed. We weren't beaten and drug home. Christ picked each and every one of his lost sheep up, and he's carrying them home. And not only does Jesus save each person individually, but he does it rejoicingly. This isn't a burden that bears him down to the point of exhaustion and anger. He dealt with all that already on the cross. He does it rejoicingly. Jesus' finished work allows for pure joy when the lost are found. Verse 6, the parable continues about the shepherd returning home. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which is lost. Think about that joy. Think if you really lost one of your children for longer than a moment, for longer than a couple minutes out of your house or out of this building or out of the grocery store, if they were truly lost and you had to go on the search, as so many we know Americans have had to do with their children that are lost or kidnapped. But when they get them back and that joy that overcomes them, um, this is what we're talking about. He's calling together, this shepherd is calling together his friends, his neighbors, everyone that he knows to come rejoice with him because that's how much it meant to this shepherd. And again, Jesus is using this shepherd to represent himself. In verse 7, Jesus finishes this first parable by comparing the joy of heaven to that of this shepherd. As we see, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And he emphasizes the joy that was created by finding, by the finding of that which was lost, right? The 99 righteous persons that's brought up here, that's a bit of a point of debate as I was doing my own research. Um, some would like to say that these are in representation of the Pharisees and the scribes, that... Um, they are uh, people who are self-righteous and want to think of themselves as not needing repentance. So that's one view. And uh, another view is that these are actually saints in heaven, and Jesus is talking of them, that they are in heaven with God, and um, they truly do not need repentance because at that time they are righteous. Um, so there's a divide between the two. Um, as I read through this parable, um, it seems to, I, I tend to lean, lean towards that direction that these are actual um, saints in heaven who would not need repentance because they are righteous and they have been redeemed by Christ. Um, but either way, you go on that. Uh, as you go into the prodigal son, which we'll get into, it seems to lean more towards the, the Pharisees and the scribes that Jesus is uh, addressing in the first part of these parables here. So keep that in mind. Um, but if they are in heaven, as it states in verse 7, 
then they can't be those who are unsaved, right? They cannot be those who are unsaved. But there is always joy in heaven, as we should know and understand, because the God of eternity is there with his angels and with the saints. His presence just creates pure joy. And so what I see, God's word is telling us here, is it amidst that joy, when one sinner repents, just one, when one turns away from his or her sin, when they see the world and everything that it offers, and they decide to turn from that because that is not their eternity. When they see truth in its light, when they see God's word onto their hearts, and when they trust in Jesus' work on the cross, when that happens, because the Lord of glory has found them, then there is rejoicing and celebration in heaven among the angels. That is what Jesus is talking about and referring to here. And verse 7. So the next parable about the lost coin emphasizes the search and the recovery of a valuable item. This woman searches for it, lights a lamp, and goes on a search. This item is extremely, extremely valuable to her as well. And the rejoicing that is found is compared to re the rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents as well, right? And we see him use these two parables. The sheep is kind of a mid-length one, and the coin is a shorter one with the same point. And again, it directs us to this sinner who repents. And then we get to the prodigal son. And the prodigal son goes into more detail. And in this story of the prodigal son, as is... If your Bible has a heading like mine does, that's what it says, the prodigal son. But there's so much more in this parable than only the prodigal son. There's two sons that are exposed in this parable. And then we also see a very merciful, graceful, loving, and forgiving father. So we'll read through this parable starting in verse 11. And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed the swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. So now that we're looking into this parable, as Jesus continues to make his point, the younger son, as we see in this story, is self-centered. He's indulged in the flesh. He is a child of disobedience. This son knows the goodness of his father's love. He lived there. He grew up with him. But he decided to leave it. This son represents um, several of us in here, possibly. It represents myself in my life. And it probably represents lots of people in this world that have grown up in Christian households but have rejected the Word of God. This son also represents the sinners that Jesus was eating with. Because Jesus is with the Jews. He is teaching and he is preaching with them. These are people that grew up knowing God's word, but went on living their life in sin and doing what people do. We live in sin before Christ comes for us. We also see that the realm of human responsibility to repentance is addressed in this parable. Suffering and hunger this is what drives the younger son to acknowledge his hunger. So God used his circumstance and put him in a place where he was um, beyond his means. He could not survive any longer. He was living a life that he shouldn't be living by, one, the way he was living, and then by the work that he was forced to go do to feed pigs in a field. And if he's a Jew, he shouldn't be doing anything at all with pigs including feeding them, and definitely including the food that they are eating. He was in a bad place, and through those circumstances, he figured it out, and he remembered his father's loving kindness, and he came up with a plan that he thought would work to get him back in his good graces, knowing that what he did was shameful. But we see that this parable also expresses the love and the joy that the father has for his lost son. Upon the son's return, the father runs and embraces him. And as some of you probably know, this wasn't the custom for any grown men to do this. They weren't supposed to run. That was a disgrace. And they weren't supposed to welcome back um, any of their children that squandered their wealth, that demanded that they had their fair share of the estate that wasn't supposed to go to them until the father passed away, yet he dished it out anyways out of his love for his son. So it was a disgrace to the father to act this way, but his love and his excitement for that lost son to come back far surpassed anything within their custom and in, within their day that he was worried about and willing to hold back. He didn't hold anything back, nothing was withheld from the son, as we can see. 
It wasn't a, okay, but you're going to earn this and earn that. Not at this moment. We see the Father embrace him and put him back in his position within the family. He gave him the best robe. He put a ring on his finger, and he gave him sandals for his feet. The father's joy is because he understands the position that his son was in. He sees his son as dead. He was lost. He was gone. Probably feared that he would never see him again. But he came back, and he sees that as he is alive and with us. And this is worth rejoicing over. This is worth celebrating over. Verse um, 24 sums that up for us in his reasoning, right? For this son of mine was dead and has come back to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. There's much joy in the loved one that comes back from the dead. Um, For us to relate to that now, there's probably not many in here who might have lost a a child um, but didn't lose them fully, right? That they survived an emergency visit or a husband or a wife. Um, Most of us have um, experienced just the loss. But to relate to this spiritually, I am very hopeful that most of you have felt what it's like to have uh, a husband, a wife, a child, a son or daughter, or a mother and a father that was not saved, and you watched them change because God worked inside their heart, made them new. So you've seen someone become spiritually alive, and I hope that's brought great joy to your heart as it has to mine in my life and what I've seen. And that's how we can relate to this. Also, remember Lazarus and Jesus rising him out of the grave? Remember the joy that his sisters had over that? And that was a physical representation, one, of the power of God and what he can do, and two, of our spiritual resurrection when God calls us from dead to alive. As we go on through this parable, the Pharisees are exposed in verses 25 through 31. So read with me in through these verses. Now the older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of his servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him, but he answered, And said to his father, look, for so many years, I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you've never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes and you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. This older son is self-righteous. He is working in his own mind to earn the father's love with his selfish ambitions. He is doing all that he can do because he knows what part of the estate falls to him. And when he sees this response 
to what his younger brother did, the life that he lived, and what he came back to, it angered him. He was not happy about this. The son represents the Pharisees and the scribes. Jesus points out the self-righteousness of the Pharisees because they were not rejoiceful that these sinners are being reconciled to God. As Jesus was speaking with them, eating with them, enjoying his time with them as he teaches them, and they listened. They grumbled. They are indignant that Jesus is speaking and eating with them. And look at verse 31. The father considers everything that he has to be his son's. How obvious is that? And how his vision and what he sees, the father sees, everything that he has is his son's. All that is mine is yours. What love this father has. Yet because of the sin of the older brother, he was too blind to see the blessing. As we sang this morning, his eyes were open, but he could not see. This has direct application today. And everyone, ask yourselves, are you too blind to see that everything the Father has is yours? Because he's given it to us. The Father explains in verse 32, but we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. In Romans 4, 17, if you'll pull that up. I like this verse. Second half of it. Even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. This is the picture of the good shepherd saving his sheep. The picture of the woman that finds her lost coin And then the picture of this father who takes back this son that neglected everything he had and ran off to live his life in his worldly flesh as so many of us have done, as I myself had done. Jesus makes his point very clear using these three parables to address the lost. And who are they? Who are the lost? These are the ones that Jesus will bring into his fold. This represents the world in so many ways. And the joy when something precious is found. There's so much joy in that. So much more than a set of cards, right? It's, it's so different than that. It's beyond understanding in so many aspects. But there is much joy to God, our Father, and Jesus Christ, when a lost sinner is found, when they repent of their sins and turn from that. He addresses the significance of repentance. Salvation is the renewal of the heart for us to have new desires, to not desire what this world offers us out there, but to desire what this offers us for eternity in God's Word. And he addresses the hard-hearted The hard-hearted are seeing their own works as worthy instead of the Father's loving kindness. we got to remember ourselves as those in Christ that the works that we do 
are in Christ and for Christ. He prepared them before the world was for us to do. And it's not of our own. And if they are, they're not going to get us anywhere. We can see how Jesus used these parables to bring about the understanding of God's work in our salvation, that out of God's kindness, we are found and rescued, that God causes the choices in our lives to lead us to repentance, right? Both the sons in this parable are being led to repentance. The one in his choice to live the worldly life and where it took him. And the other son who is confronted in his self-righteousness. He saw himself as a servant of his father, as a slave, as someone who needs to earn everything that he gets. And he didn't see himself as the son to this father that he is. And that everything that father has was his. And that the self-righteous are arrogant and blind to see God's graciousness. And that is addressed again and again and again in God's word. And we can't see it until he's done that work in our heart. And then truth is there and it's obvious. Lost sheep matter to God and they should matter to us whom have been found already. It's of most importance to him to make sure he brings home all of his lost. So five years ago today, as I've mentioned a couple times, but it was five years ago, I was in this position of the prodigal son. And God, in his grace, picked me up and carried me home to this church, right? I was found and given a new life and experience the Father's love through the love of this body, through you, through the men and women here that I've come to know and become friends with, that I consider my family now. I love each and every one of you, and I see God's love through it, the way that I, my wife and I were welcomed into this household of God. You know, the seed was planted in me through God's Word when I was young, when I was three or four years old through my dad who began going to church. And the reason he began going was because the seed was planted in him when he was a young child through his mother and father. And maybe the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, but he lived a rebellious life in his young adulthood up to the point of where I was three years old and we were out doing stuff together and God in his heart reconciled him to ask him, what are you doing with your life and what are you going to do with this child? And my dad tells me this story and he reminded me of it before I came up here today. And God used that circumstance and that moment in his life to lead him back to what he was taught when he was young. And the same has happened to me because Five years ago, today is the eve of my oldest son's birthday. He turns five tomorrow. And five years ago this week, my wife and I had just barely become, uh, began coming here, um, seeking out this church. I was um, in email communication with Lee, the pastor here, 
um, just asking him some questions, and he was responding gracefully to me. And I want to read you what I responded back to him. I said, PBC for Payson Bible Church, as it was then, is the only church my wife has ever been to. I'm glad she wanted to come with me. She has an open mind and a great big heart. She knows nothing about God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit except what we have learned here in the last two weeks at church. I've done an awful job expressing my faith in Jesus to her and frankly, have done nothing in God's eyes to show her his path. I never lost my faith, but I buried it deep about six years ago when I went through some hard times before I met her. But she deserves to know the truth and to have a place in heaven near to God much, much more than I do. I want her to choose it for her, not because I tell her she should. It's very important to me that she is taught the truth and nothing more or less than the Bible. This was my heart five years ago, and it was a new heart because I did not have that heart prior to us coming here, prior to us meeting this family, prior to me seeing the Father's love for me and when I had walked away. And it brings me to tears every time I think back to this and the circumstances that he used in our lives to change us and bring us to repentance. And it wasn't just my own heart that changed, but I remember the joy when my wife told me what she believed in and trusted in Jesus um, a couple months later after we'd been coming here. And um, I rejoiced beyond rejoicing um, in the only way I knew how. I even remember running and grabbing Lee and saying, she believes, say the prayer, say the prayer. That's what I thought we had to do at the moment. And um, he was very graceful, and um, everyone here just blessed us with so much love and has welcomed us and has shown us this Father's love in our lives. And um, without his love, which one of us would be here on our own if he hasn't brought us into his family? So God uses your circumstances as he used mine to bring about the repentance of the lost. So if you're here today, he is in pursuit of you at this moment. He is coming for your heart if you're here today. Or if you're here because of your salvation already, he's also using you to the purpose of seeking more lost souls, to seeking those that aren't brought back into his fold yet. He intends to carry the burden for them, just as he did for you and for me, for the sheep in the parable, for the son that didn't deserve any of the blessings that he received when he returned home. Christ is willing to do that for his people. Respond to his grace and repentance now, for today is the day of your salvation. And remember that we may not know when a sinner repents, but heaven does, and we can rejoice in knowing that our Creator has finished His work on the cross for each and every one of them. There will not be one left alone out on His own. Christ will find every one of His own people and bring Him back, and He will use us. He will use the church. He will use your relationships 
and everything we prayed about this morning together and the songs that we sang, it's because of his grace and his kindness and his love that we see in these parables that he will do that. And remember, we got all this because the Pharisees grumbled because they were complaining of who Jesus was spending his time with and speaking with. So I must remember that as you should too when you grumble about what's happening in life and how God is using us to bring about the lost sinners around us. Bow your heads and pray with me. Lord God, I thank you so much uh, for this opportunity again to share your word and your lessons in our lives. Um, Pray that you will be glorified through this, that your love is magnified, that it is put above us in a manner that we can come to you at the foot of the cross in repentance, Lord, that we know that your mercy and your grace has saved us. You have put all of our burdens on your shoulders and you've brought us home to you to rejoice in this family that we have now and this family that we will be with in eternity in your presence among the angels. And when we are there with you, we will rejoice for every lost sinner that repents and enjoy that moment knowing that you have saved them, Lord, and you have brought them home. I pray that we can find joy in our lives today, now, with our family and our friends, at any moment that anyone repents of their former life, that repents of the lust of the world and turns towards you and trusting what Christ has done up on the cross for our sins. We thank you for these words and these parables. Thank you for Jesus being so willing to share so much of his heart and what it's like in heaven. As we look forward to being there, Lord, use us in our time here on this world to bring about your will. We give thanks to you, your Son, Christ, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.